Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B37, Shahanshah It's always nice to start things off with a good deed. At least Ardashir must have thought so. Because that's what he named his first military outpost beyond the eastern borders of Fars. The Ardashir, the good deed of Ardashir, was built on a large flat plain circled by snow-capped mountains. Later, as the city of Kerman, it became a major regional trade hub growing wealthy off the caravans crossing between Bactria, India, and the Persian Gulf. So, at the very least, it was a good deed in hindsight. Just off to the east lay the region of Sestan or Sakistan, the land of the Scythians. As you may recall from way back in episode B24, the Scythians had settled down in the area during the mid-2nd century BC. Two centuries later, it had been the last stronghold of the Indo-Parthians against the expanding Kushan Empire. Though the region had eventually fallen to the Kushans, it still retained its Parthian ruling dynasty the House of Surin, the traditional crowners of Parthian kings. The reason I mention Sestan is that, at some point, Ardashir invaded the region and forced the Surins to become Sassanid vassals. Their king even took the name Ardashir Sakanshah, or Ardashir, king of the Scythians. And if all that happens now, as some scholars suggest, then Ardashir technically began conquering the Kushan Empire even before he took on the Parthians. Either way, whenever he did it, the latest Kushan emperor, Vasudeva I, was apparently powerless to stop him. If Ardashir wasn't quite that bold just yet, then his initial target was Isfahan. The city had been founded by either the Medes or the Persians, and its name came from the old Persian Aspadana, or place of gathering for the army. 
It was the closest major city outside the province of Fars, and sometime around 222 AD, Ardashir rode north and took the city from its Parthian governor. Everything he'd done up to now, his refusal to join Artabanus's army and his forays into the east, weren't necessarily direct challenges to Parthian rule. But Isfahan was different. Isfahan meant war. But not necessarily an impulsive war. Up in his capital of Ecbatana, King Artabanus V of Parthia was still rebuilding his forces from the recent conflict with Rome. And hearing that Ardashir returned south after taking Isfahan, Artabanus knew he at least had time to strategize. By now, it had become glaringly obvious that he should have executed Ardashir's father, Pabog, the minute he'd overthrown the Persian Frataraka. But what was done was done, and, easy or hard, the Sassanids needed to be brought to heel. Meanwhile, down in Fars, Ardashir turned his attention to a few new building projects. He obviously had a strong attachment to his maiden castle in the south, and he picked a nearby location to build the new Sassanid capital. The site he chose was Gor, modern Firuzabad, an old Achaemenid city lying in a pleasant lowland valley. There was only one problem. The city was currently underwater. Five hundred years earlier... During his invasion of Persia, Alexander the Great had flooded Gore by redirecting a local river. Undeterred, Ardashir cut a tunnel to drain the lake, then used the reclaimed land to build Ardashir Quara, the royal majesty of Ardashir. The capital was designed on a circular plan some two kilometers across and featured four cardinal gates and a broad defensive trench. At its center, Ardashir erected a 30-meter-tall Zoroastrian fire temple, using a spiral design that may have inspired the later great mosque of Samara. And while a new capital is always nice, Ardashir knew that a Persian king's not a Persian king until he cuts into a few mountainsides. So it was at Nakshi Rajab, just east of Istakar, that Ardashir carved his very first royal relief. In it, he stands before a group of attendants, accepting the diadem of kingship from Ahura Mazda. All this construction didn't come cheap, and it's worth considering where Ardashir got the money. There was personal wealth and possible temple donations, along with any tribute or plunder he'd taken from Isfahan. But it's also likely that he'd stopped paying tribute to the Parthian king Artabanus. And that, as much as Isfahan, was a clear declaration of war. In 223, Artabanus ordered King Orodes of Elemius to take his forces east into Fars and subdue the Persian rebel. 
As mentioned previously, the Elemians are reported to have worn mailed armor and fought with bows and spears on camelback. And thanks to an Emocene historian named Heliodorus, we also have a contemporary account of Sassanid weapons and armor. It may be more applicable to a few decades later, but it's useful as a broad sketch of just who the Elemians were fighting. The Sassanid army was mostly made up of lightly armed infantry and archers. But it was the wealthy Persian nobles who provided the cavalry. Their bodies were encased in corselets made of overlapping plates of iron and bronze, which offered both protection and flexibility. When combined with greaves to protect their legs, every horseman was covered from foot to neck. According to Heliodorus, each rider also wore a helmet that is compact and made of one piece, and it is skillfully crafted to look exactly like a man's face. Persian horses were similarly protected, with metal plates and leather armor, designed so it didn't impede their movement. For his main weapon, the horseman used a pike, somewhat longer than a spear, and also wore a curved sword at his side. We have no information on relative numbers or any details of the battle itself. All we know is that the Persians emerged victorious, and the Elemian king Orodes was likely killed. Ardashir followed up with an invasion of Elemius and the capture of its current capital of Sorak. Then, with the kingdom secure and momentum on his side, Ardashir decided to just keep on going west. And yes, that means we're looking at you, Cherusina. Ardashir likely figured Artabanus would send Cherusine troops against him next, or, at the very least, would employ them in any larger Parthian campaign. Either way, the ancient Gulf Kingdom had to be taken off the board. In short order, Ardashir defeated their army, killed their king, and captured the Cherusene capital. He also decided to rename the city, and the Greek Cherax Spasinu, the fortress of Hispeosines, became the Aramaic Carchmason, the castle of Messena. It'd soon be renamed once again as Astarabad Ardashir. Up in Ecbatana, it's safe to assume that Artabanus was fairly gobsmacked. Two of his vassals had just been defeated, the Sassanids had control of the Persian Gulf, and Ardashir was now in striking distance of the southern capital of Tessaphon. And, strange as it sounds, Artabanus might have actually had mixed feelings on that last point. Because there's a decent chance that his older brother the deposed Parthian king Vologases VI, may have still been holed up in the city. As you may recall from episode B33, Artabanus had usurped the throne from his brother around 216 AD. But he never managed to dislodge him from the southern capital of Tessaphon, where Vologases kept minting coins, declaring himself the rightful Parthian king. For the better part of the next decade, Artabanus had apparently let this slide. 
And while he may have been tempted to let Ardashir kill his brother, Artabanus knew that he couldn't just sit idly by and let the Sassanids take Tessaphon. In early 224 AD, he gathered all forces still loyal to the empire and led them south into Fars. What followed were three major battles between the Parthians and Sassanids, about which we have very little information. The climatic third battle, the Battle of Hormuz Dagon, apparently took place in April 224. But even for that one, we don't have a solid location. Some sources say it was fought near Isfahan, others that it may have been farther south. But either way, like Actium or Gogamila, the outcome proved decisive. According to legend, it was during the battle that Ardashir first claimed the title of Shahanshah, King of Kings. And it was also during the battle that the Parthian army found itself outmatched and eventually destroyed. According to one source, the Book of Deeds of Ardashir son of Pabog, Ardashir came to battle with Artabanus and killed the entire army. The entire wealth and property of Artabanus fell into the hands of Ardashir. My favorite story about the battle is this. According to one account, Ardashir and Artabanus met on the field and began fighting one another on horseback. At a critical moment, Ardashir's horse seemed to bolt, and just as Artabanus began his pursuit, Ardashir swiveled in his saddle and shot him through the heart. Which on the 0.1% chance the story's actually true, means the last Parthian king was killed by a Parthian shot. Shortly after his victory, Ardashir took a page from Cyrus and Alexander and took a daughter of Artabanus for his wife. Actually, according to legend, she was his second Parthian wife, the first being an Arsacid princess named Myrod. It was supposedly Myrod who'd given birth to Ardashir's first son sometime around 215 AD. The boy was named Shapur, or son of the king. And if the legend is true, it's interesting, because it means Shapur was actually half Parthian. Ardashir also captured two sons of Artabanus, who were apparently well-treated in his court. Two more of Artabanus's sons fled east, to the cushion court of Vasudeva. And, in case I forget to mention it later, Ardashir'd eventually have two more sons of his own. He'd name one Ardashir and the other Shapur, which must have been useful for hand-me-downs and whatnot. Young Ardashir'd eventually become governor of the city of Kerman while young Shapur become governor of Adiabene. Returning to Fars, Ardashir built a massive new palace, close to his new southern capital of Ardashir Quara. The palace of Ardashir's son of Pabog was a larger and more elaborate version of his nearby maiden castle, only built much more for show than for defense. 
It consisted of three domes, built in a local architectural style, and was sited near a pool and natural spring. In addition to its function of watering a royal garden, the spring may have served as a place of worship for the goddess Anahita. Time to cut a few mountains? Most definitely. In the cliffs near Ardashir Quara, Ardashir carved a long relief depicting the Battle of Hormuz Dagon, and highlighting his personal triumph over the Parthian king Artabanus. Nearby, he carved a second relief of Ahura Mazda investing him with the kingship. But Ardashir saved the real showstopper for Nakshi Rustam, near Persepolis. In the royal necropolis of the Achaemenid kings, Ardashir carved a stunning relief that had set the standard for the rest of his line. Like the earlier reliefs, it featured Ardashir receiving the seal of kingship from the supreme god Ahura Mazda. But this time, not only were both figures mounted, but their horses were trampling on the prone bodies of their enemies. For Ardashir, it was Artabanus V, while for Ahura Mazda, it was Angra Mainyu, or Ariman, the Zoroastrian spirit of falsehood and destruction. Not only that, but in the style of the Achaemenids, Ardashir included a royal inscription in the three main languages of his new empire, Parthian, Greek, and Middle Persian. If you stick to the Book of Deeds, Ardashir's next conflict was against a Kurdish king named Madig. And after that, he fights a guy named Haftan Bokt, the Lord of the Worm. And I think the worm is supposed to be a dragon? It's some pretty crazy stuff. But never fear. Ardashir triumphs over Kurds and dragons and whatever else comes his way. And in 226, as his crowning achievement, he finally marched on Tessaphon. It's possible Volagasis was still there, and maybe even put up some kind of fight. But there's no record of a battle, and the coins of Volagasis just kind of peter out. So it's safe to assume it wasn't much of a contest. Whether he fought, fled, or joined Ardashir's court... Volagasis was never heard of again. Once he'd taken the city, Ardashir held a ceremony, where he officially crowned himself as Shahanshah, King of Kings. He'd go on to make Tessaphon another Sassanid capital, and while he was in the area, he also performed his second good deed. The ancient Macedonian city of Seleucia on the Tigris, nearly wiped off the map by Avidius Cassius, was soon refounded as the city of Ve-Ardashir. The sources disagree on Ardashir's next set of conquests, whether they were to the east or to the west. But just for convenience, let's tackle the east first. If he didn't already take over Seistan a few years back, there's little doubt he did it around this time. To the south, he conquered the territory of Mekron, which extended from the Gedrosian Desert across the Persian Gulf into modern Bahrain. To the north, he moved into Margiana and Bactria, 
capturing the major cities of Merv and Balk, then into Karasmia, just south of the Aral Sea. But soon enough, it was back to the west. In 227, Ardashir moved up the Tigris from the province of Messena into the Aramean heartland of Babylonia. The Sassanids called this region Asoristan, land of the Babylonians in Middle Persian, and Ardashir likely captured the ancient city of Babylon. He then continued north toward Roman Mesopotamia, which, as I mentioned, may not have been Roman if Macrinus had bargained it away to appease Artabanus. Either way, the Sassanids called this region Arbaistan, the land of the Arabs. And yes, I posted an updated map up on the Ancient World website. By this point, Ardashir was pretty much in cruise control, and there wasn't a cloud on the... No, you're not serious. Guys, he's going to Hatra. Dude, do not... No, you know what? Go ahead. You'll do great. I tried to warn Trajan. I tried to warn Severus twice. No, do it. You're the guy. Have fun. Pack a lunch. So, how'd it go? Not so well, huh? Couldn't take Hatra. Huh. Huh. What's that? Massive, impenetrable walls? And lots of archers shooting gobs of arrows? And they killed a ton of your soldiers? And what, it's super hot and there's no food or water for miles around? Wait, are, are you sure we're talking about the same place? Hatra? Middle of nowhere? Huge temple to the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash? Same place. Huh. Huh. Oh well, I'm sure you'll do better next time. Actually, there was one pretty surprising outcome. Within another two to three years, inscriptions record the presence of Roman soldiers, both inside Hatra itself and patrolling the nearby countryside, which means that in the aftermath of Ardashir's attack, the Atreni actually ended up forming some sort of defensive alliance with the Romans, which just goes to show exactly what kind of magic and existential threat can sometimes work. But back in the present, after bypassing Hatra, Ardashir moved north into Adiabene. Now, Adiabene had always been pretty tight with the Parthians, though they definitely pushed things once or twice. Artabanus had even told Macrinus that Caracalla's desecration of the Adiabene tombs had been a major reason for his campaign. But either way, the Adiabenes knew that the nice loose arrangement they had with the Parthians would be a thing of the past if the Sassanids took over. And it's probably for that reason that the Adiabenes joined forces with the new Armenian king Tiridates II. To jog your memory, Tiridates was the son of King Khosrov I, making him the nephew of the recently deceased Parthian kings Artabanus V and Volagasis VI, which meant as long as he lived and Armenia remained free, the Parthian Arsacids would remain in power. For his part, 
Ardashir was going for the Parthian hat trick, or, more to the point, the triple crown. The account of one Armenian history is likely a bit hyperbolic, but contains some elements of truth. Tiridates gathered a large force of Armenians, Albanians, and Iberians. That's the Albania and Iberia between the Black and Caspian Seas. He supposedly even opened up the Caucasian passes and allowed the Alans to pour through. The Armenian history says this combined force rampaged south all the way to the gates of Tessaphon. But more likely, the Armenians, Albanians, and Iberians joined forces with the Adiabenes in an attempt to fend off the Sassanids. Actually, Ardashir shared one important trait with the peoples he was fighting. They were all devoted worshippers of Anahida. Armenia had long been heavily Zoroastrian, and Anahida, or Anahit in Armenian, had a large and popular cult. Cassius Dio even says that one region along the Cyrus River, on the borders of Albania and Iberia, was just flat out called the Land of Anahit. But Ardashir wasn't the type to let a little thing like shared devotion get in the way of a good conquest. The end result of the ensuing conflict was that Adiabene was taken, but the Armenians and their allies held the line. Unable to move any farther north, and unwilling for the moment to challenge the Romans, Ardashir led his army back south to consolidate his gains. So, what exactly was it that Ardashir was building? So far, he'd mainly conquered former Parthian territories. He also retained some aspects of Parthian imperial structure, allowing a few vassal kings to remain in power and modeling his court along familiar lines. But in terms of his intentions, a few broad themes were beginning to emerge. The first was a trend toward greater centralization in the administrative, military, and religious spheres. The second was a hearkening back to the legendary glories of the Achaemenid Persian past. And the third, proceeding from the second, was the evident intention to recover all former territories of the Persian Empire. And it just so happened that in the West, those former territories were mainly Roman. Sometime between 230 and 232 AD, Ardashir marched his army back up the Tigris to the captured territory of Adiabene. Not far away, to the west of the river, lay the important city of Nisibis. And if the Romans had ceded Mesopotamia to Artabanus, they'd clearly use the king's death to reassert control, because Nisibis was once again in Roman hands. It's also likely that the first Parthian legion was once again stationed in either Singara or Nisibis. So crossing the Tigris meant crossing the Rubicon and openly invading the Roman Empire. 
Given his career to date, it's hard to imagine Ardashir having a moment's hesitation. He certainly had at least some intelligence on his opposite. A 22-year-old boy who'd spent a decade in power without having fought a single battle. Not only that, but according to rumor, he was dominated by his mother and obeyed her every command. Ardashir would draw him east, crush him militarily, and reclaim Syria, Anatolia, and Egypt for the Persians. If Severus Alexander wanted to hold on to his empire, he was going to be made to fight for it. <laughs> 